You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Barragon to talk about World AIDS Day, observed on December 1st, today. Welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. I'm uh, glad we're able to get this out um, on World AIDS Day, which is uh, which is a good thing for us, and I think a uh, reminder for for what um, what we're all kind of here for, for doing this work in HIV. So, John, today we want to talk about the use of PrEP for HIV prevention in our populations. But before we do that, let's talk first about the EHE strategies from the CDC. While many of us working in the HIV field may know about them, perhaps some of our listeners would want us to review them to remind them of the overall plan. Yeah, so I think um, it's, I agree, it's been a while since we've actually talked about uh, these strategies, but the EHE uh, initiative is basically scaling up before science-based strategies that we can um, um, that we can use to basically end the HIV epidemic. So for those of you who are in New York State, there's also the ETE plan, which is end the epidemic. And then for the federal plan, for, for those of you who are listening to this nationally, uh, and also those in New York State as well, we also have the 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 um, the EHE uh, initiative as well. Um, so these the, the four strategies are basically uh, diagnose, uh, treat, prevent, and respond. So diagnosing patients, getting them treated, uh, HIV prevention, and obviously responding. Um, so what the CDC is doing right now is um, it continues to invest in the communities most affected by HIV. And so if you look at the demographic data that they collect, um, they, they actually have zip code level data <laughs> that'll show where the most new infections are actually happening. And what they've done is they basically directed uh, most of those resources to, to where there's a the larger need. I'll just share one little snippet. In 2019, 52% of the new infections occurred in the South. Uh, and again, they divide the country up by four regions. And uh, when they when they look at this, but 52% uh, is, is in the South. So there's a lot of zip codes in the South that really have, have major, major problems uh, for, for new infections. And there's a lot of work to be done there. So in addition, uh, we also would all probably agree uh, that we really kind of took a step backward, I think, um, with, with the pandemic hit. Um, so so um, we now need to kind of continue to refocus our efforts moving forward. And so while all of the strategies are, are important, I think I would focus today, I thought I would focus today mostly on uh, during the week of World AIDS Day and what I think is the most important strategy, which is prevention uh, and prevent. So the, the strategy called prevent. And so why do I think this is most important? Really, because in all honesty, it's the one intervention that, that's almost universally uh, underutilized in our 
in our most high-risk populations in the United States. And clearly, if you look at the data, um, outside of uh, white MSM, who have the highest rates of, 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 uh, of, of PrEP use, almost every other community uh, and, and also women have, have low have low uses of, of, of PrEP. So let's so we'll talk a little bit of time, spend a little time today talking about the EHE uh, Prevent Initiative. John, I know the CDC is heavily involved with supporting the EHE Initiative. Can you tell us what they're doing specifically? Yeah, so sure, Mariana. So so um, so if you go to the EAG website from the CDC, they've highlighted a few things that are doing to assist with the prevent strategy. And so specifically, if you look at just prevent, um, the CDC, they recently added some flexibility to the EHE funding requirements. So this, this allows communities to provide uh, services related to PrEP using EHE funds. So CDC is, is really continuing to, to look for ways to expand access to, to these PrEP services through ongoing coordination with, with um, HHS agencies, health and human services agencies, and also these HIV-focused administration leadership. So, so a lot of that, a lot of that's being done. Um, also, uh, some of this is also, uh, um, uh, CDC is also supporting this program called Ready, Set, Prep. And so the U.S. De- uh, Department of Health and Human Services a program that provides PrEP medications available at no cost to individuals who qualify and lack prescription drug coverage. So this Ready, Set, PrEP is really an important part of this whole prevent um, strategy that, that we're talking about. It also works with, uh, with HRSA, so um, uh, to, to train healthcare providers on prescribing and managing PrEP. And, you know, HRSA is who funds a lot of the work that we do with the ATC, right? Um, and clearly, uh, we're working to uh, to increase the availability of prep services in some of the community health centers that are out there. So we're certainly working working hard to do some of that education and helping helping to make sure that those things happen. Um, in addition, they, they also work with Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is SAM SAMHSA, um, really to conduct outreach among those groups at highest risk to improve knowledge of prep availability and access methods. So one of the things that's important here is that. The to think just to just to kind of focus on this for a second, prep is also available. Prevent that prevent um, strategy is also available for people who are using injection drugs. So people who inject drugs, and certainly this is a, a big piece of what SAMHSA is is, is trying to do. We also um, are doing some. They're also maintaining clinical guidelines for prescribing prep, and that was just updated last year. It updates that prep locator. Um, so if you do the preplocator.gov, uh, uh, that they go to that website. They'll tell you, so you put a zip code in, it'll tell you exactly where you can get PrEP in, in an individual zip code across the country. Uh, develops and delivers education campaigns to both uh, public health healthcare providers to combat the stigma associated with PrEP and use use um, and HIV. And it operates Get Tested, which is an national STD, HIV, and hepatitis testing locator to find near uh, nearby free or low-cost testing. But despite all of this, Marianne, I think it's really important to review um, uh, some of the some of the CDC, uh, some data from other patients, other persons as well, that really look at the access to to, to prep again, supporting this um, this prevent strategy. Who's getting it? And who's not getting it? And why is that happening? So first, some good news in 2020: about 25 percent of the 1.2 million people for whom prep is recommended um, uh, were actually prescribed it. So that's a pretty decent number, but again, still have a lot. Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of work to do. If you look at what that number was in 2015, it was only three percent when PrEP was first uh, being being launched, which is a big difference. So the big issue in 2020 data that looks at PrEP coverage showing it at 25 percent 
Overall, there are big differences in who's actually getting that PrEP, though. So Black and African-American patients, it's only 9%, 16% for Hispanic Latino. If you look at white, especially white men, about white patients in general, it's 66% of people are, are getting uh, a PrEP. Again, from the 2020 CDC data. So clearly, we have a lot of work to do to make sure all patients are getting access to PrEP, and particularly um, Black, African-American, and, and Hispanic uh Latino, Latinx uh, uh, patients to make sure that they're, they're, they're getting uh, PrEP. Another important population for us in our work here at the ATC is PrEP use among transgender women and men. So there's been some recent survey um, that looked at PrEP use and showed that only 32% of HIV negative transgender women reported using PrEP. And then um, um, the, the scarier part is that 92% were aware of the medication, but only about a third were actually on it. So again, high knowledge, but low uptake has, has been very well documented in transgender women as well. So again, we have a lot of work to do there. Another important group are, are patients who are aged 16 to 24. So uh, preliminary CDC data shows that only about 16% of at-risk subjects in the 16 to 24 group were prescribed PrEP uh, in 2020. It's a 27% for 25 to 34 and 30% for 35 to 44. So if you just look at 16 to 24 and 25 to 34, you're looking probably maybe about 25%, if you're lucky, are getting PrEP uh, in those age groups. And that's where the vast majority of our new infections are actually coming from. They're, it probably accounts for over half of the new infections in, the, in those age groups. Mariana, I think another thing that's important is to talk about women. So PrEP use of women. So in 2020, PrEP use was three times as high for men than women. And, cis, and since cisgender women accounted for almost 20% of new infections in 2019. This is also a key piece that we need to focus on. And so also um, I, there's some data from, uh, from a survey from North Carolina, which was, which was uh, recently presented at ID Week. It demonstrated similar results. National survey uh, in 2021, about 90 questions. It was conducted among cisgender women, most patients from the South and Western US, 92% were less than 40 years of age, uh, about a third were black, a third Hispanic, and about 21% white. So some key data from this survey found that in women, 16, only 16% had used a condom all the time when they were having sex in the last in the last year. 19% had exchanged sex for money. 9% had an SCI in the past two years. And while 71% had heard of PrEP, only 37% had discussed it. Only 20% reported ever taking PrEP, and only 9% were actually currently on it. So when we look at the at the numbers in women, only about 10% of the people in this survey were actually on it. And if you look at the CDC data from 2019, that number is almost identical. It's about 10%. So, so again, for, for women, cisgender women, um, obviously for transgender women, it's a struggle as well. But for cisgender women as uh, also, a lot of these patients are at risk and they either they don't know that they're at risk or, or they, they haven't agreed to, to, to take PrEP uh, or have got a prescription for it. So in my mind, this information really highlights the importance of focusing on the need for PrEP for women. So I think we have a, still have a lot of work to do uh, in making sure that we get we get PrEP um, uh, for, for these uh, other populations. This is great, John. A lot of information. Clearly, there's more work to do to get PrEP to the people who need it. So in 2021, the guidelines for PrEP were updated. Can you highlight for listeners some of the new information that was released? Sure, I'd be happy to highlight um, some of those additions for you, uh, Marianne. I know we covered this in a previous uh, <clears throat> a previous podcast as well, so I'm sure if you look back, you can probably find one. But just to highlight some of the big things, most importantly, I think 
that the guidelines really recommend that providers inform all, all sexually active adults and adolescents about PrEP. So this whole idea of risk-based assessment has been removed. And so if you remember the old guidelines, it was all based on risk. And the bottom line is now, if you're at risk and you request PrEP, um, uh, providers should be willing to provide it to you. So you'll see the guidelines simplify the determination of indications for PrEP uh, use for sexually active persons who, who um, it includes also flow charts for assessing indications for sexually active persons and persons who inject drugs. In addition, they also have the option for PrEP for IM cabotegavir. So many of you who may be listening to they may not know this, but there's now an injectable, an IM cabotegavir, uh, that, that um, again, it was conditional on the FDA approval, and now this is actually approved, and it's now recommended for HIV prevention in adults, and that that all that cabotegavir information is now in the guidelines as well. For lab tests, they also revised the HIV testing section, so just to be sure that for, for anybody who's looking at those guidelines, uh, when you're assessing HIV status in persons with no history of recent antiretroviral exposure, um, uh, or if you're starting or restarting PrEP, and a second one for assessing HIV status at follow-up visits while persons are, are taking or have recently taken PrEP. They, they've also added HIV viral load testing to patients on PrEP in addition to the fourth-generation testing. And some of that um, may, or, may or may not be, uh, it may be difficult for you to implement that in your, in your clinic, but when you look at uh, both oral PrEP and also for injectable PrEP, the guidelines do recommend HIV viral load testing in addition to fourth-generation testing for, for, for HIV monitoring for patients who are uh, receiving on, ongoing um, ongoing HIV prevention. And believe it or not, TAF-FTC was actually not on the guidelines until now. So TAF-FTC, which is the newer version of, of this prevention pill, um, was also added as an FDA-approved choice for sexually active men and transgender women at risk for HIV acquisition. Just be sure to note that still the FDA approval for, for FTAF, uh, uh, which is the newer version, is excluding persons at risk who who are um, um, who are at risk through receptive vaginal sex, including cisgender women. So there's no women. Uh, transgender women is okay, but for for cisgender women, there's no indication for for FTAF um, in the guidelines. Also, revise the frequency of assessing creatinine clearances to 12 months if you have a decent creatinine clearance and you're young, oh, under 60 or sorry under 50. And it also added some procedures for providing. Uh, uh, same day prep, uh, telehealth, and also looked at two one one dosing. Doesn't endorse two one one dosing, which is that kind of on demand uh, TDFFTC, but it outlines some of the procedures for that if you do have somebody who's who's doing that. And then it has a section on, on primary care considerations um, for providing prep uh, cabotegavir for prep. So bottom line, for anybody doing prep work, this is a great document to review. There's a lot of great charts, and to be sure you you were doing it correctly. Uh, especially if you're doing injectable prep or cabotegavir, that's all new in the guidelines. So I encourage you to providers to re review as needed. And also you can always call the, the NCCC, which is the, you know, the, the, the clinical consultation center nationally, or even a local ATC for help if, if you need it. John, since this episode is specifically for World AIDS Day, can you tell listeners a little bit about the history of this Awareness Day and what it means globally? Yeah, so this is probably a great way to kind of round out this uh, this episode, I think, uh, Marianne. And and so, um, so world the World Health Organization um, uh, public information officer started a World AIDS Day in 1988, and this was an international day for global health. So this has been a great opportunity for people worldwide to kind of unite on one day of the year uh, in their fight against HIV. So this is also done 
to show support for people living with HIV. And more importantly, uh, it's designed to really commemorate those who've died from, from an AIDS-related illness. And especially, for at least in my mind, for, for those that really died prior to the availability of effective HIV treatment. You think about what happened in the early 80s when, uh, and even the late 80s when we didn't have treatment for patients that was effective. You know, more recently, I think it's also uh, been a day to kind of pause and to, to bridge new and effective programs and policies across different sections and sectors around uh, HIV AIDS. For example, the EHE plan and the role that these programs have in ending, uh, ending the HIV epidemic. Uh, each year, uh, United Nations uh, agencies, federal agencies, and societies across the globe really joined together um, on this special day to campaign around specific themes related to HIV. And so I actually took um, took a second to, to look up um, UN AIDS, the World AIDS Day theme for 2020. And the theme this year is, and this is kind of be our final thought for the day, is, is what they call equalize. So this is really a call to action. And I think in a prompt for all of us who work uh, uh, for the proven practical actions needed to address inequalities and help end AIDS. And so the website actually lists the following actions. And I think we're all doing this, but I think we just put it top of mind, I think, in, in these in, 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 uh, uh, today on World AIDS Day and, and, and in the work that you do each day. We want to increase the availability and quality sustainability of our services for HIV treatment, testing, and also prevention so that everyone's well served. It's a big issue in our country, a big issue in other countries as well. Uh, reform laws and policies and practices that uh, to tackle the stigma and exclusion faced by people living with HIV and, and in key and marginalized populations. We certainly see that here uh, in, in, in where, where I am, and I'm sure where you are, Marianne, where everybody is, is working. But really, I want to make sure that everyone is shown respect and is welcomed and gets access to treatment. Ensure that the sharing of technology is, is appropriate to enable equal access to the best HIV science between communities and between the global uh, South and, and North. And then communities um, will be able to uh, make use of and adapt the equalized message to kind of highlight particular inequalities they face uh, to press for more uh, for, for the actions needed to, to address them. So I think all of us, we all try to do this in our work with, with persons uh, with HIV, but I think more needs to be done for prevention uh, to be sure the marginalized have access to the same level of care for HIV prevention and treatment as, uh, as, as, as others. So again, a lot of work to do. Clearly, it's great work, but again, uh, just think about that equalize um, or, or, or prevent um, uh, uh, prevent, and also equalize are kind of our two themes of the day today for this World AIDS Day. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about World AIDS Day and why it's so important. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nekaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. 
The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.